Tonight's message from the Word of God is called Escape or Infiltrate. We're going to look at a passage in the Old Testament, and it's going to come up on the screen now, and you're going to hear it being read to you. It's from 2 Kings chapter 6. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus, he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha. The prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he strike them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Now it's a strange story, isn't it, this story? Because we're back in the Old Testament, we're in the times where Israel, the people of God, were living in a kind of landscape it's not really like what we're used to today. They, they were in the middle of constant jostles. Military, powerful uh, armies were fighting against one another to try and take hold of land. And at this point in the story, we find that the king of Syria is opposing God's people and coming against them. And the two characters we're looking at tonight are Elisha and his servant. And I just want you to imagine what it would have felt like on that morning in the city of Dothan when they they get up out of bed that morning and Elisha's servant gets up, maybe, you know, he opens the curtains and he looks out to see what the day is going to be like and behold, all around the city, the enemy's army has arrived overnight and he knows that that army is there against him and Elisha. Not against the residents of the city, but against him and Elisha. He must have been feeling so outnumbered in that moment, so isolated. There's, he's thinking about them and us, and there's two us, and there's hundreds of them. And he knows that he's being surrounded by hostile people. They've not come for a chat or a negotiation. They've come to seize them and kill them. I don't know if that sounds at all familiar to you in your experience as a Christian, but I certainly know there are hundreds of times in my life where I have looked around me and thought, there's them and there's us. And I'm in the minority as a Christian. 
As someone living in the UK in the 21st century following Jesus, I could feel like Elisha and the servant, outnumbered, isolated, minority. New Day is the reverse of that. One of the reasons this campsite is such a fantastic place to be for a week in August is because, with the exception of some people, most people on this campsite are in the us. Most people here love Jesus. They've seen that God is real. They're following him with their lives. They want to follow after him. They want to read the Bible. They want to pray. They want to learn. They want to sing worship songs. They want to read books that will train their mind. They want to live for Jesus. And we have a whole week and we get to experience the usness of that week. And you know, when I was a teenager, I went to a camp a bit like this. It wasn't just for young people. It was for families of all ages. But at that camp, I went with another family in my church because my, my family are not Christians. They don't follow Jesus at the moment. And so another family took me. And I would go every year to this camp. It was called Stonely. And I, I absolutely loved it. I would spend six days just soaking up being in the majority, being in the mainstream, fitting in with everyone because we all wanted the same thing. We all wanted to fist pump the air and say, yes, Jesus. And then every year as a teenager on the last morning, I'd wake up with this horrible sick feeling in my stomach because I knew, oh, it's the last day of Stonely. I've got to go home. And home is a place where I'm in the minority. Home is a place where the them feels really big and the us feels really small. Home is a place where I'm an outsider. I'm like a misfit. I've got to go back to my family where no one else follows the teaching of Jesus. I'm going back to my school where almost no one, it feels like, is interested in God and everyone's lifestyle is pushing towards something that I'm not really into. And I remember feeling that horrible, that horrible sickness in my stomach like, oh, back to normal life where I'm in the minority. Poor me. Do you know the pressure was so strong on me in those times of wanting just to fit in again? I, would, I, just, I just could feel it. I just wanted to go back home and almost, like, almost pretend that Stonely had never happened and just put it to one side and just merge in with the crowd. Just go back to school and be the same as everybody else. Wear the same clothes, speak the same way, get into the same music, watch the same TV, even try and pretend that I believe the same stuff as them. You know, we get in those debates and those discussions about your beliefs about God, about sexuality, about creation and evolution and about abortion and euthanasia and, and, and all these different topics. And I just used to feel such a pressure of wanting to fit in and just to be able to agree and to be mainstream. And I hated feeling like I was the one that stuck out. I used to hear my friends talk about me at school and I used to hear them say things like, well, Livy wouldn't do that because she's a Christian. Well, Livy wouldn't say that because she's a Christian. Oh, Livy won't wear that. She's a Christian. And it used to be like, a, it used to hurt inside. I used to feel the ouch of it. I used to feel like such a misfit. I know there's hundreds of you in this tent tonight. You know what I'm talking about. Because that's what it feels like when you go home from New Day. And the pressure to conform and to slide back in. The Bible says it's like a mold squeezing on you. I'll let you into a secret. Last weekend I went to a wedding and I wore a dress that was just a wee bit too small for me. And it did fit a month ago, so something must have happened in the meantime. I'm sure it shrunk. But I spent the day in a dress that was too tight. And I was squeezed. I could feel it. There was pressure on my lungs. There was pressure on my ribs. There was pressure on my core muscles. I could feel it. It's like I'm, I'm fitting in, but I don't really fit in. And it was, such a, it was such a claustrophobic way to spend a day at a lovely wedding. And when I got back in the evening, the relief when I undid the zip. <sighs> 
And you know, it, it can feel like that. We're just looking for a moment when we can have relief. And sometimes we think the relief will come if we just capitulate, if we just go along with what everyone is saying, if we just try and fit the mold. But I, I tell you, the relief doesn't come from that because deep down inside, you know and I know that we don't fit. I remember God really powerfully teaching me this and I had a real breakthrough in understanding this when I was 16. Because I felt like there was this curse over me. You stick out like a sore thumb. In your family, in your school, amongst your mates, on the hockey team, and the netball team, you stick out like a sore thumb. You're the only one who has to be different because you follow Jesus. And then one day someone was prophesying over me and they said this, they said, you feel like you stick out like a sore thumb. And I was just like, oh, it's like a curse. I hate this. And then this lady said, Jesus says, stick out like a sore thumb for me. And something started to change in that moment when I understood that maybe Jesus actually wanted me to stick out like a sore thumb. Maybe Jesus wanted me to not be one who blended in. And then I began to read the Bible and I began to listen to sermons and teaching in my church and in my youth group. And I, I learned things like this. Jesus said, Livy, you must be born again. You've been born again. If you've come to Christ, you've been born again. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And I started to have this understanding of myself because of what I was hearing in the Bible and because of what I was reading. Do you know there's this verse in John 15 and it says, if you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But I felt Jesus say to me this verse, but because you're not of the world, Livy, that's why the world hates you. I started to understand that the reason I didn't conform, the reason I didn't fit in, the reason I couldn't blend is because I wasn't of the same origins now. Becoming a Christian had meant that I had a new beginning and I had a new identity. It's like I'd started again. It was as if God had taken my passport, right? And on my passport, it says that my place of birth is London and it says that my citizenship is British. And it was as if God had taken a great big marker pen from heaven and he crossed out the words London and Britain and instead he'd written heaven. And he'd given me a new beginning and he said my citizenship was no longer here on the earth. But my citizenship, my, my place of origin was heaven. And I had this new sense of awareness. I don't fit here and I'm not supposed to because I come from somewhere else. I started to understand that being a Christian didn't just mean I had a few different beliefs. It meant I was fundamentally from a different place. It's like being an alien coming from another place, from out of this cosmic world, coming from somewhere else. And I discovered it was an incredible sense of relief to stop trying to fit the mold. It was like unzipping that dress and getting out of it because it was too small for me anyway and realizing, do you know what? I'm not meant to fit this. In Philippians 2.15, I found Jesus speak to me from the Bible in this verse, and it says, it says about me, I'm called, and this is true for you too, we are called to be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom we shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Suddenly, I understood that I wasn't supposed to fit here, but I did have a purpose here. I was to shine like a star in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. And I could see it all around me. I could see the darkness all around me. It's like an Elisha's servant gets out in the morning and opens the curtains and he just sees the army of hostility all around him. And I could see that in my daily life. I could see people who hated God 
trying to persuade me not to follow him. I could see people who wanted to live as rebels against God's way. I could see people living with darkness and embracing darkness. And and I, I could feel the contrast between them and me. But suddenly I understood it made sense. Because they are them and I'm part of us. What I find really fascinating about this story is that when Elisha looks out the window, he doesn't say, alas, woe is us. When Elisha looks out the window, he doesn't seem troubled by what he sees. He doesn't panic. He doesn't wring his hands. He can see something else. Elisha doesn't think of himself as a victim. Do you know what so many of us as Christians We've believed the lie that we're victims to be pitied because we follow God. We believe somehow that because we don't belong in this world that people should feel sorry for us when the truth is we have been rescued out of darkness and placed into light and sent back into this world. Elisha didn't feel like a victim. When Elisha looked out the window, he could see the same things that his servant could see. Okay? He could see the chariots, he could see the horses, he could see the army. But Elisha could see another reality at the same time. Elisha had eyes that had been opened by God. It's like this. You know like if someone hands you something really tiny in a science lesson, they put it on a Petri dish and they say, oh, oh, we want you to look at this. And you look at it and you think, I can't even see it. And they say, put it under the microscope. And you put it under the microscope and then you can see it because you've got this lens that's working on top of your natural eye. You've got this other lens working on behalf of your eyes, and suddenly you can see things far more clearly than you could before. And you can see tiny things that you thought before were invisible, but now you realize are visible. It's like that for Elisha. He had some kind of lens over his eyes. So when he looked out the window and saw the army of the Syrians against him, he also saw a second army surrounding them. He he could see something else. He could see with eyes of faith. The lens that Elisha was looking through was the lens of faith, was looking with spiritual eyes to see what was around him. And I want you guys to get this tonight because I want you to understand that if you look only at what you can see with natural eyes, you will end up with a victim mentality about being a Christian. You will end up, it's a travesty. There are hundreds and thousands of Christians in this country and this is how they think. They live by, by sight, what they can see with their eyes. They take stock of the world around them. They make an assessment of what's going on and they come out with phrases that sound like this. Oh gosh, it's so dark in that community. I don't see how God's ever gonna break in. Oh, the church is declining in the UK. People are leaving it week after week. We've just got to hang on. I do hope those young people at New Day can hang on for another year to make it through to 2018 because it's so, it's so difficult for them. You know, they, it's such a tough time to be a Christian these days. You know, to be so opposed and, and the nation's moving away from God and oh, poor us. But Elisha doesn't talk like that. Elisha doesn't say alas and woe because Elisha can see. And it says this in verse 16. He says to his servant, more are with us than are with them. Elisha's got eyes of faith that can see victory. Whereas the servant can only see the despair and the gloom of the darkness all around him, Elisha can see victory. Elisha knows they're totally outnumbered. He's not unrealistic. He's not hiding his head in the sand. He's not doing that, you know, always look on the bright side. Oh no, I don't think they're coming for us. I think they're, I think they're here for somebody else. We'll be fine. No, he looks and he sees it's dark. As Christians, it's really important as followers of Jesus that we look at the world and admit what it's really like. 
It's dark. Our society is pushing on every barrier it can possibly find to try and move us away from the values that come from knowing God. Redefining marriage, redefining gender, redefining sexuality. Social media is pushing us into a new way of relating to one another. There's a, there's a constant surge of violence, of aggression around the world. It's dark. But Elisha could see something else at the same time, and that's what I want us to see. I want God to open our eyes so we can see the chariots of fire that are around us. Tonight, I want you to see that you are surrounded as a Christian by chariots of fire. Do you know there's another time in the Bible when you see this kind of scenario, when you see one person totally isolated, totally outnumbered, surrounded by hostility, people shouting, abuse, depraved people taking pleasure in the phrase, crucify him, crucify him. People objecting to God and rejecting his son. You see a man being held up and mocked as an apparent king of the Jews. You see a criminal on his side yelling at him, cursing him. The sky turns to darkness and he cries out. Hanging on that cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, this is a moment, if ever there was a victim, if ever there was a moment when you thought this guy is up against it, it was Jesus on the cross, rejected by men, even rejected by his father. The Bible says the father, when Jesus was dying on the cross, the father turned his face away from his son. He despised the sin that he was carrying upon him. He could not bear to look at him, so he rejected him and turned his face away from him. And it would be easy if you were looking at that scene to think, oh, what a victim Jesus is. What a terrible day in history. You know, it's all gone horribly wrong for God. He sent his son, this wonderful good teacher, this nice man who did all these healings, and, and then he ends up like this. What a, what a poor guy. But if you look at what Jesus is like on the cross. You don't find a man feeling sorry for himself. You don't find a victim hanging on that cross. Because if you look closely, what you see is someone who's there by choice. Someone who knows exactly what he is doing. In fact, when he prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting a verse in the Bible that was written hundreds of years before him because he knows and his father knows and the Holy Spirit knows they have made an agreement to ensure that this event happens. They have planned it before the foundation of the world that he would be the Lamb of God who would be slain, that he would hang on that cross because he knows what's happening in that moment. When his body is racked with pain, when his father has turned his face away from him, he knows that he is taking the penalty of sin for all people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation that has ever existed from the days of Adam and Eve through Abraham and Moses and all the Old Testament narratives right through into our day today, through all the centuries that have been since the year that Jesus died to today and on into the future. He knows he's taking all of that sin on himself once and for all time. He knows that he's ending the barrier between God and man. The curtain in that temple that was ripped in half happened because Jesus dying ended the separation 
between us and our Father. He knew that he was reconciling people back to God. You know what else he knew? He knew that he was breaking the power of the curse. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve turn away from God, and this whole planet, this whole cosmos is subjected to a curse, hidden in that curse is a promise that one day it will get broken. It will get broken by a son of man on the earth, an offspring of Eve. And it says his heel will get bruised, but he will crush the serpent's head. Jesus knows when he's hanging on the cross, he is crushing the devil's head. He knows that he is defeating the powers of darkness. In fact, his final cry, it's not a pathetic, weak, giving up, I'm quitting kind of a cry. The last thing Jesus says on the cross, he says, it is finished. He's saying, it's done. This moment right now, right here, finishes his reign. He is ending the dominion of darkness when he dies on the cross. He is declaring as he stretches out his arms, it's finished because he knows victory. He knows that that he's come to destroy the works of the devil. It says in the Bible, he came and experienced death so that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who holds the power of death. It says of him in Isaiah, it's prophesied that when he comes, he will swallow up on this mountain, the very place that he was crucified, the covering that's cast over all peoples. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from every face. Jesus dying on the cross was the moment in history where every other event that had taken place was culminating in the victory of God over evil. There is no yin and yang. There is no duel in heaven between a goody and a baddie. There is no equality between the powers of light and the powers of darkness because when Jesus went to the cross, he absolutely defeated death. He crushed death to death. Yes, let's celebrate. And you know what? Jesus knew that the disciples were in for a rough ride. If you've become a Christian this week and you think your life is now going to be easy, let me let you in to a very important fact. Jesus knows you are in for a rough ride. If you're already a Christian in this tent, Jesus warned us. He says to the disciples the night before he dies, in this world, guys, in this world you're going to have tribulation. You know what? You look out the window, you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. If you turn the radio on, if you turn the news on, you see a world with war. You see a refugee crisis. You see the threat of terrorist attacks. Sometimes you see successful terrorist attacks, bombs going off in concert stadiums, killing dozens of young people. You see the rise of knife crime in cities around the country. You see these random acid attacks taking place. You hear stories of rape and mugging and violence. You, you see the daily reality of family breakdown, children having to leave where they live in their families because things have got so bad in the home they need to go and live in foster care or be adopted. You see the reality of adultery, relationships breaking up, affairs, immorality. You see, you see child abuse, domestic violence. You see paedophilia. It's all around us. The darkness is everywhere. The chariots and the army of the evil one is all around us. You see the, the depravity of our minds as human beings as we turn against one another with racial hatred, 
with the division of communities, with, with using social media to try and rip strips off someone in your class, post a picture of them to make them look stupid, tear into their self-esteem to pull them apart. It's everywhere. The darkness is everywhere. You see it, but you know what you need to see? You need to see a Christ who was crucified and who won the battle. You need to know that the chariot of fire that Elisha was seeing was like a prophetic sign. The chariot of fire was like a sign that a day was coming when the army of heaven would completely invade the earth and there would be no more balancing act between the darkness and the light, but the light would start to overcome. So Jesus says to his disciples the night before he dies, you're going to have tribulation. But then he says this, I have overcome the world. Take heart. What we need to know tonight, what we need to know tonight is that Jesus has won the ultimate victory. That though we're living in a day and an age as young people, as adults, living in this nation, living in other nations in the world, though we're living in days of darkness, we need to know that darkness will never overwhelm the light of Christ. And we need to know this, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. We need to be thoroughly convinced that we are not victims, that we do not need to feel sorry for ourselves, that we do not need to pity our plight as Christians in a world that has turned against God. We need to know that actually, far from being pitied, We can celebrate because God has called us to something incredible whilst we are still here on the earth. You know what Elisha did when he saw the Syrian army all around and then he saw the chariots of fire behind them, around them? He didn't sit back and think, oh, thank goodness that there's some chariots of fire. Servant, let's stay indoors all afternoon. Let's see what God does. And hopefully by later on today, we can peek out and it'll all be finished. He didn't think like that. I love the fact that Elisha didn't have that. I love that what Elisha thought was, let's get involved. Our God is greater. He that is with us is greater than those that are with them. So let's get involved. Do you know, Elisha didn't escape. You might be tempted to live as a Christian who tries to escape the darkness. Loads of Christians do this. You know, you go home from New Day and you think, you know what would be easier? If we could just recreate New Day every day. Just a small version at home, you know? Start the day with preaching, worship, never go to school, never do any homework. Never have to have any conversations with people that don't love Jesus. Never be around anything that vaguely troubles your conscience. Much easier not to sin when there's a lot less of the temptation in your face. Maybe you feel like you wish you could just escape. But Elisha didn't feel like that. Elisha didn't stick his head under the duvet and hope that it would all get sorted out. Elisha saw the chariots of fire and do you know what he thought? I'm going to ride one of those chariots. I'm going to be part of what God is doing against this evil power. Elisha's response was to infiltrate. In fact, it was that that he was doing that got him in trouble in the first place. If you remember the story, the reason the Syrian king sends that army to Dothan to find Elisha is because every time he tries to attack the king of Israel, the king seems to know what his action plan is. And the reason the king knows the action plan is because Elisha is hearing it from God prophetically and passing the message on. God is using Elisha like an undercover agent, like some kind of secret operative behind the scenes. I think it's like God running his very own spiritual MI6. He's enlisted Elisha to be on his team, to infiltrate the plans of darkness, to thwart them, to ruin the schemes of the king of Syria, to get in behind the lines, to sabotage his plans. That's what got Elisha into trouble in the first place. And at this point in the story, we find Elisha's happy to continue with that mindset. Elisha's mentality is like this. Darkness is coming. 
God is with me, I'm going to mess up the plans of darkness. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to ruin the schemes against me. I'm going to ruin them because God is with me. And that's what I want to say to you guys tonight. Sitting in this tent tonight, we are called to have an attitude like Elisha. We are not called to escape this world. We're not called to hang on in there our 60 years or however long we've got left before we die. We are called to infiltrate this world. We are called to infiltrate the cities and towns and communities where we live. We're not running away from the darkness. We're running into it, knowing that we're agents of light, that we're shining like stars. And you know what? We're not powerless. Elisha had immense power. Not only did he have the power of prophecy, that gift that had enabled him to see these secrets from the king's bedroom, but actually he also had the power of prayer. Elisha knew that if he prayed, God would answer him. He prayed for his servant, for spiritual eyes to be opened, and it says, the servant saw the chariots of fire. Then he prayed for the army, for earthly eyes to go blind, and it says God answers, answered according to Elisha's request. Elisha knew that if he prayed, he was accessing immense spiritual power. Do you know that about prayer? Do we know that when we pray, we are unlocking immense spiritual power to be at work on the earth? We just prayed for people to get healed. And I tell you, immense spiritual power was just at work in this tent, healing hundreds and hundreds of people's bodies. Because God takes prayer seriously. He invites us in to infiltrate dark schemes in the place of prayer. He invites us in to raise requests to him that will mess up the plans of destruction in your friends' lives. Do you know when you pray for one of your friends or someone in your class at school or someone who takes the same bus as you, you are accessing the power of a victorious Christ who died and was raised again to infiltrate the darkness in that person's life. When your friend tells you, When your friend tells you they're suffering with anxiety and fear about their future and you say, I'll pray for you, you are not offering them a little tap-tap hug. You are offering them, you are giving them an invitation into experiencing the power of the God of peace. Prayer makes a difference. That's why we start every morning on this campsite with a prayer meeting. That's why this afternoon we gathered hundreds of you in the Rhythm Factory to pray about serious youth violence in our nation because we know prayer is powerful. That's why Elisha prays in this moment that that God would move. It's why tomorrow and on Saturday night we're going to spend time praying for church plants, for our cities and our towns, for God's hands to be at work in our nation because we know when we pray we are unlocking the kingdom of light to invade the kingdom of darkness, to bring about the gospel, the advancing gospel of Jesus Christ that brings hope to the world. Elisha prays but he also does something else. You know, like a good secret agent, Elisha's equipped with many weapons, many gadgets. He's got prophecy. He's got prayer. He's seen healing. But he also acts. When the Assyrian Assyrian army come down towards the city, it says Elisha goes out, prays that they would be blinded. And then the next part of the story that we didn't read says Elisha then leads hundreds of blinded soldiers into a neighboring community where they are then themselves vulnerable and under, under the threat of hostility. Elisha takes action. It's like Elisha sees the situation. He sees that God is victorious. He sees that God is great. And instead of backing off and thinking, God's got it all in hand, he steps in. Isn't that what you want? 
Isn't that how you want to live your life? That's how I want to live my life. I want to live my life saying, God, you are greater in me than he that's in the world. So I am going to step in. Every place I see darkness, I'm going to step in to sabotage the schemes of the evil one. I'm coming in to the, to the situations where the devil is at work in people's lives. And I'm bringing the hope of the gospel. And I'm bringing the light of Jesus. Isn't it time? Isn't it time that we said no more trying to blend in? No more trying to fit in and conform with the culture of this world. Isn't it time that we said no more feeling sorry for ourselves as Christians in 2017? Isn't it time that we said no more fearing the darkness and worrying and being concerned that somehow maybe the light will get extinguished by the darkness? Isn't it time that we say no more thinking like victims? No more wishing that we could escape. You know what? It's time to infiltrate. It's time to have a new mentality that you start to see that your mission, should you choose to accept it as one of God's secret agents enlisted on the earth, is to infiltrate the enemy camp with the good news of Jesus Christ, with the gospel. Next time you hear people gossiping and backbiting and tearing into each other, instead of stepping back and feeling, oh, if only it could change. Why not step in? Why not say something that changes that conversation? Why not say a positive word about the person that everyone else is tearing into? When you're on social media and people start to post rubbish, why not unfollow them? And why not post something in return that is positive and godly and expresses something of the truth of Jesus in their lives? When you're at school, instead of dissing your teachers and disrespecting them, why not honoring the authority that God has given to enable you to get an education? Why not step in to infiltrate the schemes of darkness in those ways? What about in your community, the racial barriers that exist, the tribal mentality? This is my zone. This is his zone. We're this kind of a person. He's that kind of a person. We mix with them. We don't mix them. Why don't you break those barriers down? Why don't you step out? Instead of wringing your hands and saying, oh, it's so horrible that it's so divided. What can we do? Why don't you get involved and start to include people and cross the barriers yourself? Instead of gathering money for yourself and trying to make your life about acquiring possessions, why don't you do what Francis Chan told us to do last night? Pray for a million pounds so that you can give every single penny of it away to serve the lives of other people. When you listen to music and the lyrics are all about darkness and destruction and the message of so much music is about sex and drugs and power and hatred and revenge... Why not write your own songs that are written about God's power and love and righteousness and goodness? Why not use your skills and gifts to infiltrate? Why not take photographs and shoot videos and write books and get jobs working as social workers and teachers and lawyers and doctors and people who care for others in the community? Why not engage with the darkness? Because you know what? You're not called to escape. You're called to infiltrate. Let's stand. My prayer for you tonight is a prayer that comes straight out of the pages of the Bible. Simon actually referenced it just before I started preaching. Listen to this prayer because this is my prayer for your lives. I want you to lift your hands out if you want to receive from God tonight, if you want to receive the truth of his word. Ephesians 1 says this, and I'm going to pray it over you. Let's just quieten down so we can focus on this. I pray, New Day, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
would give you, young people in this tent, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds, and all the others are in here. My prayer is that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, like Elisha's servant, that you might know what is the hope to which you, Christian, have been called. That you might know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance that Jesus has won for you and shared with you as a saint. And that you might know what's the immeasurable greatness of his power working towards us who believe. It's according to the working of his great might that he was working in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And he put him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put Jesus at the top of all things. He put everything under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is us. His body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's my prayer. Amen.